Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Jason Millard to discuss his book, Progressive Country, and the late Jan Reed's Redneck Rock. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Jason Millard, the author of Progressive Country, How the, not, how the 1970s Transformed the Texan in Popular Culture. And we're also going to be throwing in some discussion of the late Jan Reed's classic, The Improbable Rise of Redneck Rock. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really glad to do this. I, I, I thought I found your book really fascinating, and it added a whole dimension. As may, a lot of it's the perspective of time, but also um, your academic perspective on this and the whole notion of identities and personas and creating Texan Texanness. And you've got a quote in your book that you say Texanness that you use Texanness as an interpretive key to American culture in the post post World War II boom. Explain what that means. Yeah, it's a big claim, but that's what we Texans do, I suppose. Um, Indeed. It is this idea that, uh, you know, there's this book, The Super Americans by John Bainbridge. It came out in the early 1960s, and it's really formative in how I think about some of these issues about how, you know, Texas thinks of itself as so unique and different in terms of its character and culture. But in so many ways, those things that we consider to be really Texan are just kind of an outsized version of qualities of Americanness. Um, this kind of notion of the cowboy openness and freedom, but also sort of garishness and loudness. And a lot of that, you know, Bainbridge book is about the notion that Texas serves the role for most of Americans as Americans do for Europeans, right? That the way that the Europeans stereotype America is how America tends to stereotype Texas. And that... Um, you know, so much of that, like, brash, can-do attitude that defines both, you know, America's possibilities, but also its sort of limitations and, um, you know, ego. Like, all of that's bound up in Texanness in so many kinds of ways. I cannot argue with that. And tell us how, why you zeroed in on the 70s as this transformative moment and how the Texan is seen and nationally. Sure. Um, so there are sort of two different things going on at once. For one, it's a moment where for the rest of the United States, those elements of Texanness, you know, this bravado um, are important because, you know, it's, it's like Carter and his circle were saying at the time that there was this real crisis of confidence, that the 70s was in a moment of American crisis and malaise um, in the wake of the perception of defeat in the Vietnam War, the Watergate scandal, 
the economic doldrums and deindustrialization, the OPEC oil embargo, that all of those things lead to this sense of questioning. And, you know, for some people, Americans, Texas was the answer. Um, now, what's going on in Texas itself is a little bit different. Like, I think that this is a really interesting moment to examine Texanness because for so long, that symbol of the Texan was almost always read as uh, Anglo-Texan masculinity is my scholarly way of saying it. But, you know, like white dudes and the white cowboy. When you said Texan, that's the image that people conjured. But in the 1970s, it's when all of these changes of the 60s around civil rights, around feminism, um, are allowing a wider stage for a larger number of Texans to claim their sort of place in the public sphere, right? To have a voice as Texans. And so it leads to this sort of, you know, examination and self-investigation of, of who we are as a people. And how does the whole Austin cosmic cowboy slash progressive country and its eventual morphing into outlaw country, how does that tie in with all this? Yeah, again, it's a, it's a kind of connection that might not be obvious on its face, but so much of that Austin scene, especially in its country rock guises, is about, you know, thinking with and playing around with this image of the Texan. It's figuring out, you know, what that cowboy image can do and represent and trying to find these, you know, kind of progressive glosses to it in some ways. Right. What is it like to be both a member of the counterculture and to be proudly Texan? You know, two things that were seen as being in opposition with one another in the 1960s, but seeing if they can share a ground in the 1970s. And they famously came together and the hippies and the rednecks have this, you know, informal peace accord. But people start going to Willie Nelson shows together. It's the legendary way to put it. And one thing. You know, looking back, I came to Austin in 88, so I, I missed this whole era, and it was a full two eras in the past. Like, the blues boom had already come along and faded by the time I came along and was involved in the punk scene. So this was, you know, ancient history to me. And one of the things that happens with history is it gets telescoped, and we forget what was actually happening. And we remember the people that made an enormous national splash, but we forget that the Austin scene, and that's what I really picked up on reading this again, that the Austin scene actually came in waves and that Willie Nelson was a latecomer and Waylon Jennings really wasn't even on the scene. So that whole outlaw country movement that is what I think of when I think of progressive country and 70s country and Austin country, they were really kind of carpetbaggers on the scene that really had more to do with people like Michael Martin Murphy and Jerry Jeff Walker and, and all kinds of people that are forgotten today. Um, like uh, I'm, now I'm forgetting their names. The BS Shepherd, am I getting that right? Rusty Weir, um, yeah. I mean, just a whole slew of people who never even. I mean, some of them were on major labels. Steve Fromholtz got an album produced by Michael Nesbeth of the Monkees, but they never really got their shot at the National Apple. They were never pushed as a unified scene, and so then they were pushed aside by Willie Nelson. And we'll get to that, but I want to first talk about how Jan Reed opens his book, which is totally the classic sort of definitive history of the Austin music scene. And as I've talked with Joe Nick Potosky and others, this is kind of the second step in Austin becoming the quote-unquote live music capital of the world and the South, home of South by Southwest and Austin uh, City Limits Music Fest that we know it now. But there's kind of baby steps 
talk about how he opens the book at, at the Armadillo World Headquarters in 1973, and why 1973 and the Armadillo World Headquarters are so important to this history. Well, sure. So the Armadillo World Headquarters, which opened up in the late summer of 1970, uh, but you're right that 73 is this year where this wave is really cresting. Um, it's where um, Jen Reed's book, The Improbable Rise of Redneck Rock, you know, starts out as an article in Texas Monthly that comes out in November of 1973. So it's a magazine article from 73. You know, that magazine itself had started earlier in that year of 1973. And it's considered to be the place where that, you know, to the extent that, that the hippies and the rednecks came together, this is the space. And that the people who put the Armadillo World Headquarters together were very much of the counterculture and had this idea that it was more than a music venue. They were throwing around the words uh, community arts laboratory to describe what they were doing there. And and that's how I kind of go about it in my book, too, is that I'm, I'm thinking more about the scene and how all the parts fit together rather than simply, you know, sort of a music biography story. Um, and I think Jan Reed has that kind of sensibility uh, as well. Yeah, absolutely. And let's go ahead and hear our first song. And this is Michael Martin Murphy's Geronimo's Cadillac, which was on the pop charts, not the country charts in Michael Martin Murphy's Geronimo's Cadillac, although at the time he was Michael Murphy. He added the Martin Murphy later on as he sort of disassociated himself from the scene. But before we get to the armadillo, I want to backtrack just a little bit and talk about um, the Vulcan World headquarters and the 13th floor elevators and what happened when hippie kids tried to play psychedelic rock in Austin in the 60s. It didn't go all that well. Yeah, you know, revisiting Jen Reed's book for this uh, podcast today, I was surprised just how much of the basic Austin scene narrative was already there. Like, in my mind, I, I was thinking that it was his 2004 revised edition where he adds a lot of this stuff, but it's it's all there in the beginning, and he gets into the Vulcan Gas Company story um, that... You know, Austin, one of its claims to fame as a music scene is that the 13 Four Elevators, the first band to call themselves a psychedelic rock band, there was this whole wave of psychedelia of which, you know, they were the the nodes, but, you know, there's the Golden Dawn, there's Cold Sun, there's all these other bands. And uh, they are targeted and harassed. Um, now, the 13 Four Elevators, you know, kind of made it easy to do so in that they were really proselytizing for the use of these psychedelic drugs, Um but it was a time when these were hard felonies, um, even small amounts of possession. And so the elevators were, you know, hounded and, and hunted down, raided at every chance they got. And they had this kind of outlaw reputation because of it. And then if you talk to the guys, uh, the men and women who were hippies in that era, it was a very, um, 
it was a very hostile environment uh, for people who looked or acted a little bit different. You know, Janis Joplin famously uh, kind of run out of town, you know, being treated as a pariah on the University of Texas campus in the early 1960s, which is why she ends up in San Francisco. Um, the Elevators, too, tried to make it out in San Francisco, but kind of fizzled out out there. So many of the Austin acts uh, had to leave, right? Um, it, it was not a... It was not the way that we think of it today, right? This kind of creative capital and a freewheeling space. That's something that happens a little bit later. The 60s are not um, a wide open moment in Austin history. Not at all. It's much more like the uh, scenes in uh, Easy Rider when they get blasted off the highway at the end by angry rednecks, you know, outraged that the prospects of a gorilla love-in happening in their community. And and you're talking about that San Francisco to Austin pipeline, and, you know, Janis Joplin goes to San Francisco, Doug Som, who's had hit singles as the Sir Douglas Quintet, busted in Corpus Christi. They migrate out to Marin County and have, you know, a whole second career in San Francisco. Um the famous cartoonist Gilbert Shelton, the poster artist Jack Jackson, they migrate out to San Francisco. Chet Helms, who ends up running some of the big um, music halls, the Avalon Ballroom and others in, in San Francisco, also in Austinite. So, you know, it's like the, the hippies are on the run and going to San Francisco, but in the early 70s, they start coming back. And what is it, what's different about the armadillo that it gets less police harassment and less harassment by uh, the good old boys? Uh, well, there are all kinds of reasons. Um, some of it is just the passage of time that those styles and behaviors that were, you know, radical in 1966 and 67 come to get accepted just from being around a little bit longer. There are changes in local ordinances. Um, there's, you know, Travis County Sheriff election, Raymond Frank, who, you know, runs in part on uh, not you know, pursuing marijuana possession in the same level. Uh, so there's just some of it's the passage of time, some of it's the fact that the Armadillo World Headquarters, uh, when it, you know, it's south of the river at a time when that part of South Austin was a little less, um, it seemed to be on the edge of things, which seems like a radical proposition now for people who know the city. Uh, but it was a little bit more off their radar, Um and then, yeah, I mean, the way that people talk about it is the fact that country artists with a traditional audience like Willie Nelson, that once they sort of bestow their blessing on the Armadillo World headquarters, it makes it harder for the police to bust them. Um, so and even people who ran the Armadillo tried to establish good relationships with, you know, the city authorities. And I think it works. Yeah, you've got a great story, or I can't remember if it's in Reed's book or your book, about the police going to bust the Armadillo World, World Headquarters, and Dandy Don Meredith, the former quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, and at that time the one of the hosts of Monday Night Football is back there, so it turns into an autograph signing session instead of a bust, and you know, you've got this picture on the cover of your book with Waylon Jennings and Billy Joe Shaver, and then Daryl Royal is in there, and I think, is that Jim Franklin as the fourth person? It is. I think that's the sort of the funniest part of it. Like, it kind of makes sense that Daryl Royal would be hanging out with Waylon Jennings, but the fact that both of them would be hanging out with uh, Jim Franklin, who, you know, was kind of the poster child for, you know, making Austin weird. Like, so much of this scene is something that he authored in some ways. Yeah, so it's exactly it. So people like Danny Don Meredith or Daryl Royal, like, that seal of approval kind of gave them a bit of a shield, uh, you know, and Eddie Wilson, who 
ran the Armadillo World headquarters. Uh, he's the source of that Don Meredith story. But he also tells stories of like being visited by um, the police to talk about some issue and them like inadvertently picking up a box that was full of marijuana and then trying to ignore <laughs> the fact that that's what they were doing, right? That they, at some point, law enforcement kind of looked the other way. It's also this notion that, you know, he said too, that at some point they got too big to bust. Um, that the police saw it as that if they cooperated some, that, uh, yeah, they could kind of keep tabs on things. Although there are stories, too, of them showing up at things like Jim Franklin's annual pumpkin stomp and just finding it to be way too weird to even, like, wrap their heads around what was happening when Jim Franklin would instruct, like, tons and tons of people to just smash pumpkins on the floor. <laughs> I've seen that phenomenon in place when... Um... At a butthole surfer show in the late 80s when the security goons were all ready for they'd had slayer there the week before and had had these <laughs> massive brawls and they were ready for something like that and when the psychedelic scene hit uh nobody knew what was going on and the, and the goons were just baffled well, let's go back to 1973 you've got a great list of um albums that came out in 1973 that either came out of austin or from artists associated with austin you had jerry jeff walker's viva terlingua um, Willie Nelson's Shotgun Willie, uh, along with Doug Sam's Doug Sam and Band. And both of those were on Atlantic Records. And so uh, uh, Jerry Wexler of Atlantic was trying to take the Austin scene to the world and picked, you know, the two flagship acts. But it totally flops. And that makes this a perfect time to introduce our next song. This is the lead single off that Doug Sam album. This is Doug Sam doing the song made famous by Charlie Pride. Is anybody going to San Antonio? Doug Sam saying the Charlie Pride classic is anybody going to San Antonio and that was the lead single off of his Atlantic debut which was heavily invested in I mean he had an all-star side band including Bob Dylan um, Atlantic put all, all their chips on the on the table for that one and, and Willie Nelson shotgun Willie but they just didn't have the muscle with the country music establishment to break it on country radio Doug Sam had a history as a pop artists with hits in the 60s like she's about a mover in mendocino so he wasn't accepted by uh country radio and willie nelson had never been accepted by country radio so it's going to take willie a little bit longer to break through but that year you also had willie uh, waylon jennings doing honky tonk heroes which is almost all billy joe shaver songs you also had debuts by asleep at the wheel kinky Friedman and Billy Joe Shaver's own solo debut. You also had B.W. Stevenson. I think he's the one I got the name wrong earlier. Apologies. B.W. Stevenson's commercial breakthrough with My Maria, which featured a version of Shambhala, which was made famous to, by Three Dog Night. I had no idea that they had basically just cold swiped his arrangement of it in some flagrant cultural appropriation there uh, and co commercial eclipsing and you also had michael murphy's cosmic cowboy souvenir and that's where uh this movement got its name for a while 
But now talk about this whole cosmic cowboy label versus progressive country. What were the distinctions between those two labels and which one was really more adopted by the people on the ground at the time? Well, sure. Any of these labels, as we know, uh, they almost never come from the artists uh, and the artists would not use them to describe their music. Um, you know, Cosmic Cowboy is one of those weird outliers where it's from a song and then Michael Murphy over time just completely rejects it as a label. He gets tired of people using it to generalize. Uh, and both of these, yeah, so Cosmic Cowboy is one that comes from um, that Michael Murphy song and it's seen as describing something that's happening on the ground in terms of a, a subculture, a style, uh, you know, this kind of lifestyle that combines hippiedom and the cowboys and you know, the Daily Texan and Texas Monthly and all these publications write all these stories and spill all this ink on defining what Cosmic Cowboy is, right? It's this kind of like back-to-the-land cowboy marijuana country music thing. Progressive Country is a label that uh, really comes out of radio as a radio format. Um, there's some kind of dispute over the origins, like who was in the room and they came up with it. But it's usually associated with Coke FM and uh, Rusty Bell, you know, coming up with this idea of like, how do we describe this music that is being made on stages in Austin that combines Texas country music with this kind of countercultural rock um, that's like Rolling Stones plus Bob Dylan plus Bob Wills, right, essentially. Uh, almost no one calls themselves a progressive country band. And even today, if you bring it up with people who are on the scene, they'll kind of roll their eyes at it. But I do think it has this kind of descriptive purchase. Like those people at Coke FM, you know, knew what they were trying to describe, that it was this moment and it was this sound. Um, and, you know, they're sort of riffing off of, like, I think progressive rock is the closest, like that's what they're riffing off of essentially. Uh yeah, and that was, notion, yeah, that it's rock, but more than rock, right? That this is country, but more than country. Yeah, it was all Quran at the time. Like groups like Yes and King Crimson and everything seemed like a good idea at the time. And I'm not going to get any bagging on progressive rock again, but, um, but it was it was seen as a positive, and it was a plus. And they would like you, you know, they played everything. They played not just these local artists and and country artists, but even George Harrison tracks. If he had a slide guitar, Leon Russell, you know, as a staple. And I really can't emphasize enough how important it is for radio to play a part in a scene like this. Like it's one thing to have artists in clubs, but when it's broadcast to the whole city and it's kind of branded as a scene, that's when things really get moving. And I think that was an absolutely key part. One thing that kind of gets overlooked and that I didn't realize until I'd started looking into the backgrounds of these people, but you know, Michael Murphy had been out in LA and even wrote for Screen Gems, was in their sort of sweatshop of songwriters. But people like Jerry Jeff Walker and Towns Van Zant and Steve Fromholz, even Guy Clark to some extent, these guys were coming out of the folk scene, just like Graham Parsons. These were people that were into Bob Dylan and the Kingston Trio before they were into Chuck Berry and and uh, Hank Williams and Little Richard and you know what we think of as sort of more authentic Americana. And so... It's interesting that whole wave of folk pop country artists that were, you know, hitting hitting their marks there in Austin at the same time as Doug Som, who's much more of a legit rock and country 
and you know um Kanuto and and R&B kind of guy and and Willie Nelson with his legit western swing and jazz roots but then you get these acts like Asleep at the Wheel and Commander Cody's Lost Planet Airman and Commander Cody wasn't from Austin but he played at the Armadillo so much people thought he was and these guys are doing straight up revival acts like Asleep at the Wheel is is trying to sound just like Bob Wills circa 1941 and Commander Cody it sounded like the backup band for a Ruth Brown Atlantic mm-hmm. R&B record from the early 50s, you know. And so it's this this there's a lot of room in this mix. But at some point it becomes outlaw rather than progressive country. Talk about that change. What's the difference between outlaw versus cosmic cowboy versus progressive country and why did outlaw win? Sure. Um so again like they're all in some ways marketing labels right they don't come as much from the artists themselves you know outlaw is one that does evolve a little bit organically around um tom paul glazier's hillbilly central studio in nashville um that you know it's i think waylon jennings is kind of like the the paragon of outlaw country right if progressive country was something that at its heart, came out of the hippie counterculture. Outlaw is something that we might think of as being in parallel with sort of, uh, we might think of as biker culture of the period, right? So it sort of buys into that, um, you know, that masculine bravado. There is this kind of hint of violence or danger, right? Um, And even Jan Reed, like, he comes out with a sequel piece to that Texas Monthly article that he published in 73. In 1976, he publishes an article uh, called Who Killed Redneck Rock, where he's going to one of these outlaw country festivals and feels like the vibe has totally changed. Now, it's, you know, all of these qualities were inherent in the scene all along. And like I said, they're just different ways of describing things that were happening. But outlaw country sort of buys more into the rock and roll image. Um, It loses kind of, you know, what some people have described as like the amber glow of Michael Murphy's music, right? If you listen to Michael Murphy, it does sound like soft 70s AM, but Outlaw Country has this more, uh, like it is a rock music that is more closely aligned, say, with like what's going on in Southern rock at the time. Um, but of course, it, it is, again, it, kind of an image and a persona, you know, even Waylon recognizes this, you know, that don't y'all think this outlaw bit has done got out of hand that he does later in the decade uh, embodies that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting um, to hear Jan Reed talk about Willie's picnic as kind of the day of the locust. But let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll elaborate that on that. Yeah, it's fascinating to go back and read Jan Reed's uh, pieces on this because there's definitely this feeling of disillusionment. And it's not quite Woodstock to Altamont because there wasn't anything that horrific at Willie's Picnics. And in fact, the 1972 Dripping Springs reunion that kind of introduced Willie to this whole Austin scene. And this was an attempt to have a country music festival outside Austin that I mean, it was successful in, insofar as drawing a crowd and had a great list of performers, but it was a disaster as far as nobody getting paid and and the promoters going bust, and also as far as you know traffic disasters and sanitation disasters. And I'm sure there was a ton of violence there, um, not you know murders like at Altamont or killings. Sorry that nobody was convicted at Altamont, but 
um, you know, Reed is kind of neatly packaging it in this narrative, and it, it's hard to say if it's just like it was better for him earlier or if it really was that much different. But it's also fascinating the transition that Lukenbach, Texas had, where you know, that first comes to national attention when Jerry Jeff Walker records his Viva Terlingua album there at Lukenbach. And this is just this classic album that's got, um, you know, songs by Guy Clark. And um, it's got the, the the famous theme song of Austin City Limits and, and Lukenbach. Tell us about Lukenbach, because it's not an organic thing. It's kind of an artificial construct. Well, I mean, yes and no. So on the one hand, it... Well, yes, I guess it is all artificial in some ways, but I think that Hondo Crouch deserves a lot of credit for, you know, making something interesting there, right? So this was this tiny town that he basically purchased, and Hondo had roots in the hill country. He had been around forever, um, you know, and he's one of these kind of elder statesmen or these symbolic, you know, older Texans of the scene like Kenneth Redgill was, um, and he creates a space where he invites artists out to play. And, you know, Viva Trilingua, like you said, I, I think that it's a real embodiment of this scene and this sound that we're describing and this focus on, like, liveness and rawness, even at the, you know, allowing things to be a little bit sloppy in order to have an authentic representation. But then the song, like you say, like, when Lukenbach launches to that next level, um, you know, Lukenbach, Texas, the hit single is written by someone who had never actually been to Lukenbach, who were just going off kind of like stories that he'd heard other people tell about it, um, Chip's moment. And, um, you know, Waylon, when he sang the song, had never even been uh, to the hamlet of Lukenbach, Texas. And so in that song, it is just kind of this pastoral imagined space of freedom that has nothing to do with the place itself, which was this town that was bought by this gentleman who became a host for different kinds of artists. Yeah. And then it becomes this number one hit single. It's interesting to read, you know, interviews with Waylon's band and they were amazed because the first time they performed it, the audience is singing along with the chorus the second time they run <laughs> through it. So it's obviously got this power, but Waylon himself quickly sickens of it, you know, and it becomes sort of this albatross around his neck and everybody's neck. And I think it's sort of symbolic of that scene being overripe and, and you can't go back to Lukenbach, Texas and have just a chill time anymore because suddenly it's flooded with tourists and everything changed. And I'm glad you brought up the whole Southern rock thing. Cause I think a lot of times, like especially ZZ Top gets talking about as if it's in a parallel universe, but ZZ Top's coming out of Texas around the same time. They're coming out of Houston instead of Austin, and they're playing blues rather than country, but they're reaching a lot of the same people. And meanwhile, you've got, you know, the Allman Brothers had kind of crested and faded after Dwayne Allman uh, and Barry Oakley's deaths, but they made this massive impact, which opened space for like Leonard Skinner and the Marshall Tucker band. And then you have people like Charlie Daniels that are um, playing Texas all the time, but they're playing down in Gillies and outside Houston more often than they're playing the Armadillo. Tell us a little bit about the Gillies scene that's going on organically and then what it becomes in the popular consciousness. Oh, sure. That's a really interesting parallel to Lukenbach in some ways because you know, Gillies is the gigantic honky-tonk in Pasadena, Texas, outside of Houston, kind of in the industrial oil uh, parts of that part of the state. And, um, 
So it's this huge honky-tonk hall uh, that attracts oil field workers, but then like people from all over Houston at some point. And it's more straight country in a lot of ways than the Armadillo World Headquarters and it's like experimental countercultural country, although they do, they share a lot of acts in some ways. You know, Charlie Daniels does go back and forth, but he does really fit more, as you suggest, with that Gillies crowd, um, where it's not a hybrid country on the Gillies dance floor, but country country in the way that it's proudly um, kind of this bulwark against the changes that were proposed by the 1970s, whereas the armadillo was trying to embrace them. And and that's simplifying matters a, a little bit, of course, but these are different audiences. And when we talk about that, like, hippie redneck truce of the 1970s, it doesn't happen in all places and all spaces, that there are still spaces that are coded you know, as conservative in places that are coded as uh, progressive, um, just as today. And I think that Gillies um, kind of shows that. And then once it becomes uh, like in the Austin scene, you know, as you say, overwrite, that once there is a John Travolta movie um, about this scene, it becomes something different, that urban cowboy phenomenon. Yeah, and I'm, I want to talk about a couple more things before we get to the John Travolta movie, which... Um... I think you correctly identify as this big sea change and cultural sea change that talks about it. But I want to talk a little bit more about why the Cosmic Cowboys failed. And that's a little harsh. I mean, they made great albums, made their mark, had cult audiences. Some of them had hit singles. But reading Jan Reed's book, because, you know, he's got his framing sequences and he's got a chapter about Willie Nelson. But the first time I read it, I was just kind of baffled, like, who are these people that he's talking about? You know, um, it made perfect sense to have a chapter on Jerry Jeff Walker, who's I was astonished to learn was from New York. I mean, this is a guy to me was the definitive Austin cowboy. Like he played at our office Christmas party one year and was this drunken mess and got into a big fight with our office manager. I just thought this guy is definitely a Texan. And then to find out that he's he's not, you know, he's most famous uh, for writing Mr. Bojangles, which was this enormous hit for the nitty gritty dirt band, which kind of allowed him to finance himself and half has his career at the same time. Like he's a notorious, like even in the Jan Reed book, he's he's a drunk blowing shows right from the get-go. But at the same time, he's putting together albums like Viva Trilingua. Um, and that didn't make a massive impact on country radio, but because of Coke FM and things like that, and because of Texas having this critical mass, it becomes, you know, he's got a big regional audience. But then you've got people like Steve Fromholtz, who's, really to me a pop folk singer but he does this classic song texas trilogy that i first came across uh, covered by lyle lovett many years later but this is a guy who toured with stephen stills and was briefly in stephen stills supergroup manassas and so the book kind of reads like this you know listing of artists who almost made it who came out of austin like from holtz gets his big shot when mike's nesmith of the monkeys who's you know, one of the pioneers of country rock out in L.A., produces an album, but then record company politics interferes, the president of the label changes, that album gets shelved. Then you've got poor B.W. Stevenson, who's on RCA. He's kind of got this pop thing going, very much early 70s AM radio. I mean, you could hear this stuff right next to Dan Fogelberg or uh, John Denver. Like I said, does this Danny Moore song, Shambhala, gets to number 63 on the charts, then Three Dog Night, cuts their version and blows it out of the water 
He follows up with another Danny Moore song, My Maria, and has a little bit of action. Then you've got Willis Allen Ramsey, who's on Shelter Records, which is Leon Russell and Denny Cordell's label. And he's somebody I had only known through the song Muskrat Love, which I was first introduced to. I think it was Dave Marsh and the Rolling Stone record guide calling the Carpenter's version of that or whoever did the hit version of that, like the worst song of all time. <laughs> um, and yet Willis Allen Ramsey has this reputation as the lost great artist of this whole period. You know, it decided never to make records again. Then you've got Bobby Bridger and Rusty Weir and, uh, and Kinky Friedman. I want to talk a little bit about Kinky later on and also Michael Murphy, you know, Murphy's kind of still controversial to this day. I posted some of these songs um, on a country music Facebook group and people were coming at me with Michael Murphy shouldn't be mentioned as part of the Austin scene. And I'm just kind of like, what are you talking about? But let's go ahead and hear our next song. This is Waylon Jennings' Don't You Think This Outlaw Bits Done Got Out of Hand. This is written in response to being busted uh, for cocaine by the feds. Songs about the night they spent protecting you from me. Someone called us outlaws in some old magazine. New York sent a posse down like I ain't never seen. Don't y'all think this outlaw bitch has done got out of hand? What started out? And that was Waylon Jennings, Don't You Think This Outlaw Bits Done Got Out of Hand. And he's, you know, breaking the fourth wall and talking about his own lived experiences. So I was kind of trying to rush through uh, Reed's book and, and the artists that he lists out. But one of these artists um, that he talks about is Kinky Friedman, the Texas Jew boy, who's uh, this legendary figure, kind of a comedic figure, carved out this unique ethnic persona, um, very country but also very much take, taking a sideways look at country. And Kiki migrates up to New York City and is a big draw at the Lone Star Cafe in the late 70s. Before we talk about Urban Cowboy, talk about what was going on at the Lone Star Cafe and how that was kind of spreading Texas chic at the national level. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, I love the story of the Lone Star Cafe. It's, you know, an attempt to export this kind of like what's going on in Texas country at the time um, and really caters to both like, you know, Texpats, as they're called, or uh, also the word that was used at the time was tinies, Texans in New York. Um, but at this moment, again, when like New York in the 1970s, of course, we know from its you know, like gritty depictions in film, for example, that it was going through really tough times economically, whereas Texas in the 70s prospering in part on the back of high oil prices. Um, and so there is this idea at the time, there's a lot of people writing about how those kind of brash identities of New York and Texas both rub up against each other and have this weird admiration for one another. So the Lone Star Cafe in New York is, you know, a Texas-themed uh, bar and honky-tonk that hosts all of these Texas artists, um, but also brings in people like, you know, there are pictures of like Andy Warhol there or members of the Stones are there. And it's uh, marked up top by there's this giant, um, like, building long, I think it's like 40-foot-long iguana sculpture that's just this garish thing that the city of New York tries to have removed. And then there's a banner beneath the iguana that says, too much ain't enough. 
which was a quote from a Billy Joe Shaver song. So it's this like site of Texas excess and selling Western style. Um, there are these fashion designers, you know, trying to sell New Yorkers on cowboy boots and cowboy hats at a time when that's going through a real like vogue. Yeah, and then Kinky is the perfect figure to kind of like wed these two worlds together. He becomes one of the um, sort of key artists there, as are some of the members of Greasy Wheels, who are another one of those artists who are a little bit forgotten in this history at some point. But they're the band who play um, the Underworld headquarters more than any other band. And then at some point in the late 70s, um, the leaders of it, uh, brother and sister Cleve and Lissa Hattersley, moved back to New York. They were from New York, and they run a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff at that cafe. Yeah, it's a fascinating sort of collision, and and you know, this is the New York that is producing disco and punk rock and hip hop all at the same time. And I love thinking about Kiki Friedman and the Hattersleys up there uh, adding their own contribution to that cultural stew that was going on in New York. And meanwhile, you know, New York is about to come to Texas in the form of John Travolta, who's just coming off of massive success as the star of Saturday Night Fever and also the star of Greece, both of which are, you know, Saturday Night Fever's the disco movie or the movie that killed disco. And Grease is this, uh, you know, musical rock and roll thing that is kind of the quintessence of the 70s, 50s revival that was going on with Happy Days and everything else. So Travolta's this fascinating cultural chameleon who goes from, you know, polyester disco suit to greasy 50s rocker look then he puts on the cowboy boots and the hat and goes down to Gillies and creates a whole new generation's icon of Texas masculinity. Tell us about that process and how did that ever work? Yeah, there were so many people who didn't think that it would. Uh, you know, there's a story of them. Um, so it's, you know, based on this Aaron Latham article that he had written, uh, about the Gillies scene. And most of the people who appear in it are based in like real people who were dancers and people riding that mechanical bull. And at some point they take John Travolta to the trailer part to meet the guy that he's supposed to be portraying. Like he meets the real guy from the Gillies scene. And that guy is resistant for so long. Like this guy, this New York disco guy can't be a Gillies cowboy. There's no way. Um, and yet it, it works to some extent. Now this too, kind of like you talking about Michael Murphy on a Facebook group, uh, urban cowboy and its representation of Texanness in Houston at the time, um, is controversial for people. People have strong opinions on this. Um, but it does kind of work. And in, in the way that I think about it in the book too, is that it does, transition this kind of like earlier hippie cowboy image um, into selling a version of Texan masculinity that is in some ways more traditional. And it's embodied in sort of the film itself, because when um, Travolta's character is leaving West Texas to come to Houston, he looks more like an Armadillo World Headquarters guy, right? Um, he's got, he's bearded, he's kind of shaggy. Um, he's, you know, dressed in jeans and like a t-shirt. But then, like, when you have this first iconic image of him transformed into someone who belongs at Gillies, it's more of that, like, really pressed Western shirt, um, neat jeans, you know, dark, not worn. Um, 
And like it, it, it does mark a kind of a difference and a reclaiming of the cowboy image and it's kind of like straightness where it had been kind of like shaggy and hippified in the earlier 70s in places like the Armadillo. And you also tie this to a bigger political transition that's happening around this time. We're going from Jimmy Carter, who was kind of the face of the New South, but he was this liberal. I mean, he was a neoliberal, but he was still definitely seen as a liberal by the country. But in 1980, we get a whole different kind of cowboy in the White House in Ronald Reagan. How does urban cowboy fit into that kind of back to the future approach or it's morning in America again, this, this sort of nostalgic revival of, you know, imaginary fifties America as reality in this weird post hippie cocaine soaked world. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, the seventies is such a fascinating decade in cultural and political terms. And I think that there is so much, again, examination of who we were as a people, and there were all of these alternatives that were explored, and it looked like we were sort of moving into this new space. Um, but the backlash is strong, right? The backlash that came against disco, thinking about things like the Comiskey Park riot, um, and the way that country comes to be seen as this conservative bulwark against all of that um, you know, kind of questioning of the primacy of, you know, uh, white dudes and the silent majority as the uh, emblem of Americanness and is this attempt to reclaim the cowboy. And, and Ronald Reagan capitalizes on that, right? He gets his picture taken on horseback. He's someone who comes out of mid-century Hollywood and its investments in Westernness. So I kind of see in some ways the John Travolta move in Urban Cowboy and like J.R. Ewing in Dallas is almost like preparing this cultural ground for some of this cultural conservative backlash that happens in the early 80s. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And let's hear our next song. And this uh, is an interesting one that kind of connects both scenes. This is Cherokee Fiddle, which was written by Michael Murphy, but this is Johnny Lee's version. And Johnny Lee was the house singer at Mickey Gillies Club Gillies. Johnny Lee doing Michael Murphy's Cherokee Fiddle, which was a big hit off of the Urban Cowboy soundtrack. And yeah, in the early 80s, Urban Cowboy basically kind of pushes the outlaws off of country radio and a whole new generation of pop country artists dominate. This is happening at the same time as, you know, the sort of the apex of the unholy alliance between Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton and Lionel Richie with Barry Gibb in the background producing some of those tracks and, you know, people like Barbara Mandrell and, and on and on. Um, country enjoying a great wave of popularity, but a lot of people questioned the authenticity of it all. And where did that leave Austin? Like, how did this new notion of Texanness echo after in Austin after um, it had ceased to be, you know, progressive country had stopped being the flavor of the month. Well, 
You know, it stays very much a part of Austin's DNA, and I think that it's consistent through what we would now call Americana, and it also opens up this space for different kinds of music, take center stage. Um, you know, the blues scene, which had been concurrent with all of this, has its turn in the driver's seat. But thinking, too, about in the later 70s is really when, you know, some of those Love It guys like Joe Ely really start to come into their own, like they're a part of the scene all along, but... Um, like, you know, his band really starts to take off later in the 70s, and then I think it's so strong in the 80s. You know, Marsha Ball, you know, coming out of the Freedom and Fire. And before Dog. you jump off, Joe Ely, you got to mention the classic moment when The Clash plays at Armadillo World Headquarters. And I think the <laughs> cover of London Calling was shot at Armadillo World Headquarters with Joe Ely as the opening act. So that kind of new wave, old school rocker, rockabilly connection was very much there and and groups in LA like the Blasters and Los Lobos and X kind of partake of that too. So just wanted to get that in there. But yeah, the 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 and I should have mentioned that whole um Lubbock contingent earlier with Joe Ely and Jimmy Dale Gilmore and um Butch Hancock and John X Reed, et cetera. But go on, you're about to talk about Marsha Ball. Well, no, but I mean, you're right that, um, you know, all of those Lovett guys are there all along, just like the Vaughn brothers are there all along. But I think, you know, the Flatlanders, another one of those, you know, groups that they kind of, they sputter a little bit in the early 70s and that their real success comes a little bit later. Um, yeah, and Marsha Ball as well coming out of the Freedom of the Fire Dogs or, and then there's this whole next generation, right? So, um Although they're only passingly in Austin, they're a part of this Austin thing, that it's later in the 70s and in the early 80s that this is the generation of, like, Robert Earl Keane and Lyle Lovett and Steve Earle and Lucinda Williams. You know, none of them Austin-based acts, but that Austin progressive country moment was important for all of them and kind of, like, setting the stuff that they were emulating and trying to follow in the footsteps of... Um, and then, you know, of course, like I said, uh, it, it opens up space for the blues guys. You know, Antones opens in 75. Um, punk a little bit later. You know, Raul serves as kind of like the equivalent of the punk Vulcan gas company. And then that launches like on a wider scale in the 80s. Um, yeah, so it's it's always there, right? It's a part of the scene, I think. Yeah, I think that you just don't get Austin as we know it without the progressive country breakthrough. And and. But again, the irony for me is that when you look at the scene, the people who really laid the groundwork for the scene, you know, your Doug Psalms, your Greasy Wheels, um, Michael Murphy, et cetera, they're not the ones who win the prize. And that's Willie Nelson who kind of swoops into town. And this whole bit with Jerry Wexler and Atlantic Records, because, you know, like you said, he had Marsha Ball on Atlantic as part of Freedom and the Fire Dogs, which was this sort of hippies doing country revival act and you know he does the doug sam album he does two albums on willie great albums phases and stages and shotgun willie that i think were absolutely critical in willie's breakthrough because they were successful in texas and and you know you have a body of work of that kind of quality such that when he moves to columbia and cuts redheaded stranger which suddenly breaks through on country radio there's this this huge groundswell and texas is such a big market you know, that makes it possible for Willie to break through and Willie and Waylon obviously, you know, ride it all the way to the top. And I think it kind of brings it full circle when Willie's duet with Merle Haggard of a song that they got off of an Emmy Lou Harris record by way of Willie's daughter ends up being um, a Towns Van Zandt song 
called Poncho and Lefty. Talk a little bit about Poncho and Lefty and how it tells a sort of different story about Texas. I mean, there's a whole world in that song, right? Um, and it's such a perfect Townsend Zant track. And it is, like a lot of Guy Clark's best work from that period, too. It's about this imagined older Texas, um, this space of freedom that's closing off. And and then what's so fascinating about the the cover, too, is like that, that cheesy organ intro is the thing that people remark on so much that in some ways... It's almost like a send-up of the song because, I mean, it's like urban <laughs> cowboy in the song, right? Yep, but it got it on the radio in the it early did. 80s. It does, yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, Towns, too, like someone who is, you know, a cult figure now, I guess was a cult figure then, but hadn't really had commercial success. Like, that's in some ways his breakthrough commercially. It um, financed him for the rest of his life. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, I mean, that's the thing about music history, right? That, um, and I guess history in general, it poses one of these big questions, like what does it mean to be historically significant, right? Are we trying to understand, you know, the best work that was made in this scene at this time and what made this scene uh, operate on its own terms? Or are we trying to figure out who has the most influence and visibility over time? And so because we have this music to go back in time and a way to think about this stuff, it's so rich. And even someone, you know, Towns Van Zandt, I think, has been very much vindicated. And then you see whole other waves, like when Blaze Foley, you know, got his biopic and um, Time in the Sun, too. Yeah, and, and he, you know, t- made his fortune to the extent that he could suddenly afford to live in a, rent a room rather than sleeping under pool tables and bars. <laughs> You know, because of Merle Haggard covering one of his songs on an album track. And Blaze Foley, I kind of want to mention, too, because his Austin persona was taking duct tape and putting them on his boot tips and ended up making like a whole suit of armor of duct tape. But at first, he's making fun of this trend coming out of Urban Cowboy and Gillies where affluent oil field workers would buy these little silver tips to put on their cowboy boots. <laughs> you know, this very uh, she-she accessory that's basically, Houston's just the classic town of, I always think of diamond rings and dirty fingernails as sort of the Houston, um, you know, the definitive image of Houston for me. And so it's, you know, these guys who are working hard out in the fields all day, but they're making big money and they want to show it off. But it becomes this thing um, for Blaze Foley to parody in the Austin clubs going forward many years. So, yeah, this whole series, the whole letter roll series is trying to wrestle with what's historically important. Is it this artistic statement? Is it people like Willis Allen Ramsey that make these albums that very few people hear, but some people just swear is the greatest album ever made? You know, or is it something um, like Cherokee Fiddle and the Urban Cowboy soundtrack that still echoes to this day? I mean, there's people all over the world whose image of Texan is coming from this. I saw Urban Cowboy in Peru in, I think, 1983 or 84. It was called Muy Macho. And (laughs) (laughs) that was the perfect title for it. But, you know, it was drawing big crowds in Peru several years after, you know, it had already passed. So, Anyway, fascinating discussion. My guest today has been Jason Millard, the author of Progressive Country, How the 1970s Transformed the Texan in Popular Culture. And we've also been talking quite a bit about Jan Reed's The Improbable Rise of Redneck Rock. Jason, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. And check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Next week, 
Nate welcomes back Ned Sublet to discuss his book, The Year Before the Flood, a story of New Orleans, and lots of NOLA R&B, funk, and hip-hop. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.